2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 30. And that should come up on the screen in a moment, and I'll, uh, I'll read it to you. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, blessed be he forever, knows that I do not lie. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. It is necessary to boast, but nothing is to be gained by it. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. For I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, churches 
have had challenges and problems from their very first years. It was probably about 10 minutes after Jesus ascended to return to the Father's right hand that questions of organisation, of responsibilities, of priorities, of leaders and their legitimacy all began to be raised. And perhaps what is most amazing is that we are here at all and that we love each other at all Because if you had made a projection of what would result from the day that Paul penned this letter through 2,000 years of churches meeting, no economist, no futurist could have predicted that we would be here, that Jesus' people would keep gathering and keep loving and keep declaring his goodness and promise, but here we are. Paul is the author of this bit of the Bible, It's a letter written to Christians in the city of Corinth. Now, their challenge, their problem... Ah, you stupid clicker. Have I got that wrong? Never mind. It doesn't matter. We'll just forget about slides. Paul's the author of this letter, right? It's a letter. It's written to Christians in the city of Corinth. And their challenge and problem is, who leads this church and why? Paul's leadership was challenged because... The Corinthian Christians were quite taken by this other group of leaders, super apostles, and they said that Christian faith didn't really have to come with such an embarrassing and difficult path as Paul had said. But in this letter, Paul argues back. He says, you really do have to pay a high price for following Jesus. And the price is, includes your public respectability social comfort and personal pride and he says it's totally worth it now i appreciate it may not seem that way you'll have to follow along in your bibles because i I can't get the slides to work so in chapter 11 verse 32 and 33 in damascus the governor under king aratus set a guard on the city of damascus in order to seize me but i was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands just imagine that's you for a moment in a basket Suspended by ropes, probably not a particularly securely fastened system, being let down from the wall to escape the police. That's just one example of what Paul suffered as the most public Christian figure in his world. What happened to him is this, when he declared that Jesus is the Lord in the Roman Empire. Now, we might say of it, wow, look how much he suffered. What a hero. But everyone in his time and place was saying, wow, look how much he suffered. What a loser. But now that we're near the end, we get it at last. The real problem is that the Corinthian Christians do not want to suffer any social shame. They want, and I want it too, a faith where there is prestige, where there's immediate and recognisable rewards, just like I can fight for out in the big wide world. The other groups of leaders opposing Paul, they're just the ones that are voicing that possibility. It's the belief that you can follow Jesus without cost. That's the real problem. So here Paul is saying what what the only Christian boast can be, which is to share in the sufferings of Christ. And he's sort of sarcastically playing this game of boasting of gaining social prestige. And everyone in their world was fine with boasting. It wasn't a problem. You sort of had to do it 
to get your place and position in society. Very normal. But Christians stand out against that. So far, in chapters 10 to 11, Paul's boasts have been this mixture of the impressive and the embarrassing. But now, in chapter 12, the first four verses there, oh, now he really plays the game. He's got like this ace up the sleeve. It's the boast that really makes the Corinthians sit up. They sort of lean in and now they're really paying attention. It is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told. No mortal is permitted to repeat. Oh yeah, this is what the Corinthians have come for. Now they're really interested. Now they're really listening to Paul. They're like, okay, Paul, you've got some stuff. Tell us about it. And he doesn't. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we can see how much they loved this hyper-experiential spiritualism. You know, they were like, oh, who baptised me? Was it the, you know, the leader with all this power who did all these miracles? They were like, who's got the greatest of the spiritual gifts? Who speaks in tongues more? Who's got all this impressive, showy spiritualism the most? Who can think about the body and in the ways that are the most enlightened? Who can prove themselves to be the most spiritual and fantastic? And they kind of get what they want from Paul here, but it's a bit, it's a bit strange because this is all Paul ever says about this experience. He doesn't tell us the content of the visions or the experience. He doesn't tell us if such experiences are available to other believers. He doesn't say if we should seek them out or not. He doesn't tell us how it is that we can attain to such experiences ourselves. And he's also kind of posturing that he's talking about someone else. But clearly he's talking about himself. He kind of gives away the game. He's got this awkward third person, first person. It's clearly him. It's all a bit coy. And he's also been holding out on them. 14 years ago, that's a specific number, you know. It's not like about 20 years ago. 14 years ago. You know what, you know what wasn't true 14 years ago at this point? That there was a church in Corinth. So Paul had had this experience before meeting the Corinthians and only now does he tell them exactly what they want to hear the most. So it's a very kind of underhanded concession, really, because he says to them that he never relied on being any kind of guru that could lead them into these great spiritual experiences, even though he could have. He never played this card before now, never told them. He never relied on that experience to convince the church or to prove the legitimacy of his leadership of them. And he doesn't even want to rely on it now, coy as he is. So the point is clear. He could play their game, but that is not the source of Christian strength or legitimacy. And by implication, it is not the source or the strength of legitimacy for the Christian life. So he says... If I wish to boast, I'll not be a fool, I'll be speaking the truth. 
but I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Christian integrity lies in the lives that we actually live, what is seen in me, and in the story that we tell about that life, what is heard from me. Integrity and testimony. A life that's changed by the power of God and an interpretation about our lives that tells God's story. That is what Paul has to offer them and by extension, all Christians have to offer the world. Then Paul makes the vision especially anticlimactic. Right off the back of something so impressive that's got everybody's attention, he says... Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. What happens to the one who has this stupendous, spiritual experience of their own? What happens to the person who gets what the Corinthian Christians would find so legitimating? They suffer. So if the Corinthians do get what they want, if they do get what they're turning to these super apostles for, Paul says, you will not have escaped the need to suffer for Christ. There's no way out of it, says Paul. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You'll have to go through it. (laughs) But notice how this happens. The thorn was, the word it uses is given. And the plain sense of that seems to mean given by God. And when Paul asked that to be taken away... God says, no, mate. God is the one who causes the suffering. Now, of course, God doesn't cause all suffering. This is Paul's particular experience. But right when the Corinthians might be correct that in Christianity we can find something to boast about to our present culture as legitimating, God brings that person down. Why? Because God will continually call us to the baseline of discipleship, which we must always walk along. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. That is what you will never escape. You can never leave behind. You can never get around. The baseline of Christian discipleship is depending on God's help. No one can escape a costly Christianity. No one gets away lightly with life when they follow Jesus. Life following Jesus is more intense, both in the hardship and in the happiness. Whether life has beaten you down in the cruel world or you're on the heights of the heavenly visions, the same thing must be true about a Christian's life, to depend on the help of God. And if you remember, that is where Paul began this letter in chapter 1. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Whether life is going well or really not, the path of following Jesus is to rely on God's power for life and living and not to rely on what the world offers or what we can manage. God says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that's a great disciple, a great follower of Jesus who knew and who lived by the fact that in our weaknesses are found Christ's power. There is nuance and maturity needed to lean into weakness. We really don't want victimization to be the end point of our authenticity. Certainly Paul did not. But our weakness that happens to us anyway is the point of discovering God's power. And that is what being a Christian will involve. Our weakness in sufferings are where we find Christ's strength. That was true for Hildegard von Bingen. She was a nun in the Middle Ages and she was sick for a lot of her life. Despite her many and severe sicknesses, there was no more significant woman of the Middle Ages than Hildegard von Bingen. She was a true saint. She loved God. She was a musician. She essentially invented genres of music. She was a physician. She was a leader. And she loved God, a theologian, a significant and powerful life that found the power of Christ in her sufferings. Our weaknesses in the confusion and uncertainty are where we find Christ's strength. And that was true for Anne Askew. She was a Protestant during the Reformation in England. For being a Protestant, she was thrown out of home by her husband. She was arrested for her preaching, she was tried as a heretic for her faith. Her world did not know what faithfulness to God meant, but Anne showed the power of God in the weakness of confusion and uncertainty. Our weaknesses in the face of hostility are where we find Christ's strength. That was true for William J. Seymour. He was the black man who was not allowed to study to become a pastor in Texas. He was made to sit outside the door of the classroom and learn while his classmates sat inside. But he was a significant part of why the Pentecostal and charismatic movements around the world renewed the church in the developing world. His legacy is, is enormous and it stretches today across South America and the African continent. Our weaknesses in the face of our fear of missing out are where we find Christ's strength. Henry Nouwen was a renowned Catholic priest. He was a famous academic. He was a sought-after speaker. He was a publicised thinker. But only when he left all of that behind 
to go and work uh, to minister to um, a home for adults with learning disabilities. Only there, when he left the public eye and his very credible place in the world, did he find that personhood which so few of us ever find. Only as he left the world behind did his writing and journals leave to us the best of what he had to say, the true direction of Christian leadership. Our weaknesses in loneliness and isolation are where we find Christ's strength. And that was true for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's there somewhere. He was put in jail by the Nazis as he resisted the heretical political lies of the Nazi regime. And there he found the comfort of Christ and he strengthened the churches when he felt crushed. Each of these people and a hundred thousand unnamed saints more have demonstrated to this whole world that in human weakness we do find Christ's strength. St. Thomas doesn't have much to offer the world. It doesn't have much to offer our city. It doesn't really have a lot to offer our suburb. At least nothing that it wants. There are no very pleasurable experiences to be found here. There's not much to Instagram. There's not a lot of legitimating self-actualization. There's not financial success and independence, at least not on the world's terms, not what it wants. Instead, we have the path of Jesus Christ to walk together. Such a path is powerful as the testimony of history leaves to us. Such a path is not what the world wants, but it is indeed far better. Less cheap and more rich. Less thin and more substantial. Less fearful and more honest. So what are your options from here? Well, you've got two, I think. If you haven't or you won't take the family name of Christian and follow Jesus or if you're about ready to give up faith in Jesus Christ, then you really need to face Nietzsche's critique of the Western world. In the 19th century, there was this bloke, Nietzsche, and uh, he, he challenged the West when he said, you know, God is dead and we have killed him. You know that bit? And he, he derided Western life and institutions for turning to reason to throw off the superstition of religion, but... He berated them for still relying on the morality and imagination of their Christian heritage. He hated, he hated the way that Christians made a virtue of weakness. That they made an admirable life out of the humble virtues that came from Jesus' life. He hated that. Europe, the West and all really post-Christian men and women should instead, by Nietzsche's view, really live by the only other option. The strong survive, the weak perish, and it is right and necessary for humanity to be strong by facing life's brutality and overcoming its weakness at whatever cost. And he's right. If there is no God, then that is the only other option. Can you embrace that view and finally be done 
with the faith that lords humility, service and lowly kindness. Can you throw off the weight of Jesus' legacy and fight in the world for your powerful place in it? If not, then this is the option for Christian people. You are not meant to do weakness as the world does it. We don't fall into weakness like giving up on the couch. That's not it. We are meant to do weakness like Jesus. That is, when you are like Jesus in character, that will cause you problems in the worlds that we live in. So take it and bear it and suffer it. And turn to God whenever it hurts, whenever it's hard, whenever it's long, whenever it's lonely, and whenever it's confusing. When we simply turn to God and the gifts that God has given for our strengthening when it's hard, we find that we have done what God wants. We have come to him in need of help. And then, and only then, then God works in the world with the power of Christ in our own little lives. To either be strong alone or be weak with Christ. You can ask yourself if there is really a greater power that you're going to find than the power of Christ's cross. Ask yourself if there's really a sweeter comfort that you're going to find than Jesus' death for a wayward sinner. Ask yourself if there's really a deeper life than the one that follows the crucified Messiah. It's not complicated. It is difficult and it is good. Let's pray. Our great God, we do give you thanks that you meet us as we are and you bid us not to be great but to give thanks for Christ's greatness and yet you make great things of us. We thank you for the saints that have modelled to us powerful lives of great legacy and we pray that in their kindness and example we might live Jesus' kindness and example for our world to see too. Please help each one of us in our weaknesses. Please help us who suffer. Help us who are lonely. Help us who are dogged by sin. Help us who are confused and uncertain. Help us who do not know the way we ought to go. Help us who are mired in apathy. That you might work powerfully in your strength in the smallness of our lives, for your glory and pleasure in Jesus' name. Amen.